Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. A few weeks back, there was this really great story in the New York Times by Noam Schreiber and Ben Castleman. It was a story about a guy named Matt Gies, who lives in rural Wisconsin. Gies grew up on a farm, and he spent a lot of time as a kid tinkering with farm equipment. When he grew up, he decided to become a farm equipment mechanic, repairing tractors and the like, and he really loved the work. He worked for a John Deere dealership owned by a Wisconsin company called Reisterer and Schnell, which owns 12 different John Deere dealerships across Wisconsin. But Gies actually left that job because he said they demanded far too many hours of work for too little pay, and so three years ago he quit. The problem is that all these years later, despite being surrounded by farms and despite looking for work, he hasn't been able to find another job repairing farm equipment. Most of the seven John Deere dealerships within an hour's drive of his house are actually owned by Reisterer and Schnell, the same company that he left. They have a kind of monopoly on the supply of jobs repairing farm equipment. It turns out that this is a common situation. In most regions of the country, many occupations are dominated by just a few employers at most. As a result, there's no real competition for labor. Economists have recently begun to study this problem, and what they're finding is quite striking. Concentration has played a significant role in holding down wages over the last 20 years. It's one of the key reasons American workers have not gotten a raise, even as productivity has soared. Today on their show, our guest is Marshall Steinbaum, one of the economists who's been at the forefront of this research and whose work was featured in that New York Times story. Marshall is research director at the Roosevelt Institute. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what's been happening to wages in recent years? Yes. So there's a longstanding question among labor economists about why wages have been uh, stagnant, a issue that has now lasted for several business cycles. So normally economists would expect there to be a decline in wages or at least a slowing in the growth rate of wages when uh, there's a recession and then there's sort of a catch-up period during the the boom that follows a recession in which wages grow faster um, than average and kind of bring the whole economy back such that the share of total income that goes to workers um, is more or less constant over time. So even as the economy grows, uh, there's sort of an equal division of the pie among the owners of labor and capital over time. And consequently, the total absolute amount that's going to workers um, would be rising over time as the economy gets larger. Uh, What has been going on now since 2000, at least, is that the uh, share of the pie that goes to workers has been in decline. And it's been in decline in a very specific way. That share of the pie declines when there has been a recession, as there was in 2000, 2001, and then again in the Great Recession uh, starting in 2008. Um, And then it's basically flat during the resulting recovery, um, uh, during the recovery that follows the recession. And that is the phenomenon that I think is getting increasing attention from labor economists because it cannot be explained by any of the data, by any of, of the observables that economists would typically typically think of as causing long-run changes in uh, wages for individuals and for the economy as a whole. And notably, that would be education. So um, the view among economists is that what determines how much individual workers get uh, over the course of their lives is how, much, how what their 
skills are, and you can tell what their skills are from their level of education and their level of experience in the labor market. Um, and increasingly, education is just not a very good way of discerning who gets what in the labor market. Um, we have already known this before my paper came out about monopsony specifically because um, there's an increasing uh, inequality in interfirm uh, earnings among workers, and what that means is that the, the 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 company that you work for matters more in determining your your wages than it previously did. So rather than it be your own mm-hmm. qualities, your own data, that's like uh, education and race or gender that is relevant to knowing or what what your total uh, income is. It matters more who you work for and their position in the economy uh, and their position vis-a-vis workers. So I think that had already kind of primed the the economics scholarly community to look for explanations for who gets what that are at odds with kind of received wisdom, at least as it's existed for the last uh, couple of decades in economics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in what you just said, and, and let's unpack it a little bit. But let me first just uh, go go back to what you were saying near the beginning, which is, you know, that, that in recessions, what we've seen in the last couple of recessions is that uh, the share of the overall economic activity that's going to wages has been has been declines, and that's sort of normal in recessions. But then what's been really unusual is that in the recovery periods, workers are not seeing their wages go up. And I think most people who are listening will feel a sense of, will recognize that problem maybe in their own lives. Um, what's really striking right now is I think, if, if I read this correct, correctly, unemployment is now at a 17-year low. I mean, we would expect, I mean, am I wrong? In that kind of condition that we're experiencing right now, wouldn't we expect wages to really be being pushed right up? I mean, if there's that much demand for work overall, that would have this effect on wages, but we're really not seeing that. And what signs of, of growth we are seeing in wages are kind of tepid. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think so. There's definitely a, a puzzle that results from, well, if unemployment is so low, why aren't uh, workers kind of getting cut in on the deal, so to speak? I want to kind of drill down directly to one of the statements that you just made, which is the reason why unemployment is low is because demand for labor is high. And I think that's the thing that uh, economists would typically have assumed when unemployment is low, that that is because demand for labor is high. But that is potentially one of the mechanisms that is sort of broken in the economy. Um, I think one of the causes of measured low unemployment is um, that a lot of people have left the workforce and uh, that you can see that in both at sort of younger ages, people spending more time in school, people going back to school, people getting credentialized, um, and also at older ages, people sort of finding ways to take what amounts to early retirement or taking early retirement as opposed to uh, waiting for sort of full retirement. All of those mechanisms are kind of eating away at um, the labor force from both ends of the age distribution. And even in the middle, you see people exiting the labor force kind of for good and and becoming discouraged. Um, I think that matters a great deal for whether, you know, to what extent monopsony is kind of the ultimate cause of these problems, because monopsony is a problem that would cause firms to demand fewer workers uh, and thus lower wages for the workers that they already have. Um, And that could uh, sort of macro level exactly be uh, at the heart of these issues of, well, why has labor force participation seemingly declined among workers at kind of every level of the of the labor market life cycle? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've got an opioid crisis out there and, right, uh, right. you know, people dying earlier than they used to. So I think that mm-hmm. sort of feeds into maybe part of this despair and being outside of the job market that you're talking to. It's all kind of wrapped up maybe together. So you used a word a couple of times now, um, monopsony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, yes. most people are like wondering, are you misspeaking? Did you mean monopoly? Because that's a word people know. But what is monopsony? So monopsony is like monopoly, except it's when the power is held on the buyer side of any market. So you could have a monopsony in, say, the market for agricultural products, um, as I think we probably do have. It's especially uh, important in the labor context because the view is that, in general, uh, workers are... uh, have have less power in the labor market than do employers. And cer- certainly the findings that we have in our paper would seem to suggest that, as does the findings on interfirm earnings inequality and lots of uh, other sorts, types of evidence point in the direction of widespread monopsony power in labor. So what that means in, a, in the kind of nerdiest context is that um, employers have power to set wages. The, in the standard competitive model of the economy, individual firms do not have the power to either set prices uh, in the market for their output, so that's monopoly, nor do they have power to set wages in the market for one of their inputs, which is labor. Um, They just go to the market, and if they need a new worker, the market sets the price for that worker. When there's monopsony power, firms' decisions change because they affect the wages that all of their workers make when they decide to employ or not employ a worker at the margin. So in the sort of most orthodox model of labor market monopsony, firms will choose to hire fewer workers than they do in a competitive labor market um, because of the effect that hiring fewer workers has on the price, on the wage they pay to all of their workers. Um, And that's kind of the, the fundamental story that's going on, not just in our paper, but in all of the kind of theoretical work about, you know, why would we think that monopsony would have an effect on all of these labor market outcomes we've been talking about, not just um, wages, but also uh, people exiting the labor force, as you pointed out, the opioid crisis, lots of sort of what I would consider labor market pathologies um, can potentially be explained by widespread monopsony power. Mm-hmm. Labor market pathologies. It's a new phrase I haven't heard before. Um, so a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with monopsony um, in the context more that we've talked about it on this show before, where a company is so powerful that it can set uh, the price that it pays for a certain input. So we've talked about this, like, for example, in agriculture, where farmers are trying to sell, you know, their hogs or their chickens, and the, the processing industry is so concentrated into a few hands that those companies basically can say, we're not going to pay you very much, and you have no competition. And this is kind of the same thing, but it, it's it's about wages and, and that what workers can get in the marketplace. So you've done, um, together with a couple of, of other economists, Jose Azar and Iowana Marinescu, um, have done a couple of studies that really delve into this and have been getting a lot of attention. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the first one that you did, which came out back in December. And I'll say to listeners, you know, you can go to the show page for this episode and we'll post links to these studies and to the New York Times article and everything else and you'll find the show page at ilsr.org. But just starting with that first study, one of the most visually arresting maps I've seen in a while is in that study and it's this map of the United States broken up I think by county and 
It's a measure of how concentrated the labor market is in each county. That is the notion that if you're in a particular occupation, there may only be one or two, three or three companies within your commuting distance that um, you could apply to for work, that it's a highly concentrated market. And so you use red to show extremely concentrated, and most of the map is red. And then, you know, some other parts of it are orange and yellow, which are highly and moderately concentrated. That's pretty much the rest of it, orange, yellow, and red. And then there are a few islands of green. Those are unconcentrated markets, but they're very few. It's Minneapolis, Denver, uh, Boston, Miami. It's mostly cities. Um, And then just surrounded by this sea of highly concentrated labor markets. Tell us a little bit about what you, what's behind this map. Where does the What kinds of occupations are you looking at? What does this really mean? Yes, so the data set that uh, we worked on in that first paper is from the uh, online uh, job matching uh, company, uh, CareerBuilder. And basically, employers would pay to post a uh, job ad on that website, and then would-be applicants can see it, just as they would have in the olden days gone to classified advertising in the newspaper and submit a... Uh, application via the uh, via the website for that job, um, and that's a fairly uh, rich data set relative to the data sets that. Um, most labor economists are used to because you can see at least some information about both employers and uh, employees. So the kind of classical labor economics that I was referring to before where you study education, race, and gender, that's because mostly for workers, you just see things about the worker and maybe, you know, and also what they get paid, but you don't see anything about their firm. Here, at least we do see which firms are posting vacancies and where they're located. um, And we can thereby uh, create the map that you're just referring to. So what we did was look at um, the occupations that are, that arise most frequently in this database. So I think it's 20 most of the most frequently most frequently appearing occupations and we define the labor market uh, as the uh, vacancies that are posted for those occupations within a given commuting zone in a given quarter. Uh, so that is an important concept, market definition, especially if you're doing uh, antitrust type analysis to see whether the market is concentrated or unconcentrated and to what extent. And we think that that market definition is not necessarily exactly the right market definition in every single case, but it is small c conservative in the sense that when workers are looking for a job, they tend to look for jobs that they think they would have some chance of getting. Um, And if you look at the occupation level that we look at, it's actually wider than the set of jobs that workers would think they have some chance of getting looking at uh, that data set from the perspective of which jobs do the workers actually apply to. So we're including more job vacancy postings in our market definition than we think are really relevant to individual workers who are looking for a job. So that would tend to underestimate the degree of concentration in that labor market. And yet we still find the results that you refer to, which is um, that labor markets tend to be highly concentrated. Um, One last thing to note about how that that chart is created, how that map is created is, you know, this this whole data set is about uh, job vacancy postings. Um, 
insofar as economists have studied uh, labor market concentration at all before, it tends to be the concentration of employment and not the concentration of vacancies. Um, and I think it is correct to look at the concentration of vacancies, if you can, as opposed to the concentration of employee, employment, which generally uh, easier to get data on the concentration of employment, um, because what's really relevant to workers who are looking for a job is how many firms are actually hiring. And uh, again, going back to the idea of pathologies of the labor market, one thing that we observe in this era of slack labor markets is that workers tend to stay in the same jobs for longer because they themselves cannot move up uh, the job ladder as, a, as is the sort of metaphor that economists typically use. Um, and the flip side of workers staying in the same job for longer and not moving up the job ladder is that any given job is vacated less frequently. So even if, you know, say there's a number of people currently working as a farm equipment mechanic in the area of Wisconsin uh, where Matt Gies works, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are, there are vacant jobs in that area that he could potentially apply to. Um, and that's why I think we show a finding that uh, caught, caught a lot of people's attention um, because they're, you know, they tend to think like, oh, well, you know, every firm, maybe not every firm has a farm equipment mechanic, but every firm, um, you know, has uh, administrators and secretaries. Um, and, you know, certainly it seems like the healthcare sector um, employs a lot of people. Um, so you would think that, say, the market for nurses is is relatively unconcentrated, but no, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are jobs available for people in all of these different occupations, especially not for people who happen who, who are looking for a job. There, I think there are many fewer uh, options to be had, and that's why the finding of concentrated labor market seems to ring such a uh, ring so true with people. We've talked obviously about farm equipment mechanics, and you mentioned nurses. Were there other particular occupations that really jumped out at you in this data as being highly concentrated areas where people were going to, you know, just not have a lot of choices and in places that might hire them? Well, frankly, basically every occupation looks uh, quite concentrated. Uh, we have a figure in the paper that shows the level of concentration, and there's a great deal of variation over the 20 occupations that we look at, but none of them look uh, particularly unconcentrated. Um, and specifically, I think a lot of people have the view that labor markets would get more concentrated if you as you move sort of up the skill hierarchy of the labor market because as you get more specialized skills the set of employers that are really um, uh, options for you diminishes but it's still there's still very high labor market concentration among unskilled uh, employees um, and frankly I would say, Evidence suggests that monopsony is a bigger problem. Not not our evidence. I, I think that there exists, you know, pretty strong uh, circumstantial case that monopsony is a bigger problem for lower skilled uh, workers, and that's exactly because they are you know, quote unquote, more interchangeable, that their power is therefore diminished in uh, the labor market. And what may what what makes workers ever uh, get what they're worth is the idea that they're that they're irreplaceable. Um, so our paper certainly doesn't suggest that monopsony is a bigger problem for, or I should say concentration is a bigger problem for uh, highly skilled people. And in fact, there are uh, occupations in our data set that most, especially antitrust people, but really anybody who studies the occupational distribution of the labor market might think, well, that can't, you know, concentration can't really be a problem for secretaries or for administrators or for people who seemingly have uh, skills that are relatively interchangeable across employee, uh, across employers. And I think that's just not uh, borne out in the data. And, and the fact that it's not borne out really 
should make people rethink their theory of what, how the labor market works and how it is determined who gets what in the labor market. Hmm. That's really interesting. So this is a really broad effect. And even, you know, even if you're someone who does have skills that ought to be relatively interchangeable, you're still facing these really concentrated markets that, um, you know, where, where wages are, are being held down as a result. Um, so I would actually ask about the level of, of the effect of this on wages. I mean, are we talking about, you know, people getting like a little bit less, like, you know, pennies or nickels on the hour in terms of the effect on wages? Like how, how big of a factor is this? Our preferred specification from uh, the uh, career builder paper um, is that we think the best estimate that we have of the effect of concentration on wages is that it reduces wages by on average 17%. And the confidence interval for that is something like between 10 and 25%. Um, And I would consider that to be a sizable effect. Um, But I also think it's worth pointing out that that is uh, net of a lot of other things that could affect both the level of concentration and the level of wages. So, you know, as in any sort of social science endeavor, you want to say, okay, well, we have documented a correlation between concentration and wages. And now let's see if we can be more uh, robust in saying that, well, okay, the, the uh, variation in concentration causes a variation in wages and our estimate for the extent to which variation in concentration causes variation wages is that if you increase the level of concentration from the 25th percentile labor market to the 75th percentile labor market, you reduce wages by 17%. But I think the way a layperson might look at, I mean, that paper, but more generally the question of how much, how big of a problem is monopsony in the labor market is that you could see all of these different mechanisms by which monopsony could affect wages, among others, concentration, um, as not so easily separable. So as a social scientist, you want to, to kind of chop up the potential pathways of causation and say, well, this one, specifically co- concentration, has this estimated effect on wages. Um, I, I think the more general policy question is to what degree does power on the on on the part of employers uh, affect wages? And there, you know, there are multiple mechanisms by which that could affect wages. I mean, for one thing, um, if, uh, you know, let, let's say that shareholders of firms are demanding that the that the firms that they own pay out more money to the shareholders and therefore hire fewer people i i would certainly think that 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 reflects the increasing power of employers versus employees um it might have two different effects on the uh, mechanism that we're talking about it might cause firms to post fewer vacancies and it might also cause firms to pay lower wages um, but in but in reality both of those outcomes are are the effect of the same cause which is the different um, power that is held by the shareholders to kind of extract what they can from the firm this whole long story is uh, about trying to say well we might say that the effect is uh, the, the point estimate is 17%, but we're trying to net out these other um, mechanisms that cause variation in concentration and also cause variation variation in wages, where it's not the variation in concentration that causes the variation in wages. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's not the rising power of employers that causes the variation in wages. I think that, you know, there's no, never going to be any one paper that tells you what the answer to that question is. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of uh, research now that suggests that that is a really uh, crucial component of understanding what's going on in the economy and in the labor market. 
Mm-hmm. I want to turn next to talking about what we should do about this, but first we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Marshall Steinbaum, Research Director for the Roosevelt Institute. I'm Stacy Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. First of all, I want to thank all of you who made a donation at the end of the year to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your financial support not only underwrites this podcast, keeping it ad-free, but also helps us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website, as well as all of the technical assistance that we provide to elected officials and citizens across the country. Um, every year, our small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge corporate concentration and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button if you haven't. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. Um, One of the best things you can do to help us reach a wider audience with this podcast is to rate and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, That gives us a big boost in visibility, and it's just hugely helpful when you do that. So thank you so much. And we're back with Marshall Steinbaum, Research Director of the Roosevelt Institute, and we're talking about concentration uh, and the ways in which uh, corporate concentration is actually driving down wages and has really kept people who work for for a living from earning what they should um, from their labors and from all of the productivity increases in the economy. Um, So Marshall, I want to kind of turn to this question of like how, you know, given what your research and the research of others is is showing about these effects, what the answer is. Um, so I want to start with one uh, potential answer that I've heard some people put out there, which is that uh, workers should just move. You know, we talked about the map, uh, and I was noting that there are a few, a very few green islands of actually competitive labor markets, mostly cities. So why don't people in, you know, rural Wisconsin and uh, eastern uh, Maine and uh, Iowa and everywhere else just all move to uh, Miami or Denver? You know, I've heard that claim made uh, uh, basically throughout my career as an economist. I put that in the category of blame the victim for the fact that we screwed up the economy. Um, And frankly, I think it's just completely out of touch with reality. Uh, I mean, one of the findings, not just in our paper and and with the career builder data set, but in this case, I can actually cite my own uh, dissertation that is that historically, you know, very few workers move. If they do move, they move a pretty short distance. That is, they want to sort of stay as close as possible to where they originate. Um, and the idea that, you know, the economy is, is consists of workers who are highly mobile, any place is kind of on the table. And um, in particular, if they're not doing well in the labor market right now, that's just because they're sort of unwilling to take the risks and take the plunge necessary and go to a place where they could definitely find a job. Uh, that That's just a wrong understanding of how people live their lives and, and how people's work interacts with the rest of their lives. Um, people don't want to move. They want to be able to have a job where they, uh, where they live. And it's not so easy to move because most people get their jobs from uh, their family or their professional network, or I should say their social network. Um, And, you know, to say, well, leave all that behind and just, you know, go to some city where you've never lived um, and you'll be fine there. That's just not true for people. They're not going to just have a job land in their lap. Um, they can't afford. I mean, certainly if you have a family, you're not going to take the risk of, you know, going someplace where you don't have a job and, and not being able to support them and, and have them 
live. Um, you're you're going to stay where you have a social network and potential you know family to to help you out with. Um, all of the things that are necessary in life. Um, so not only is it just not true that workers move very much, they've been moving less and less uh, since 2000. And I would say again that that reflects what these labor market pathologies, or it is one of the uh, pathologies of the labor market. Moving is something that workers do when they have a job offer that actually makes it okay, makes it worthwhile for them to take the plunge and leave their social network, or because it's their social network that was actually able to come up with the job offer, even if it's at some geographic distance from where they currently originate. It's indeed a problem that geographic mobility is on the decline, but that's not a problem that uh, individual workers aren't doing what they should. It's a problem that is part of the larger problem of um, economists and policymakers just not understanding how to do their job. It's interesting, too, because looking at these these green islands, I mean, San Francisco and Boston, I mean, have you tried to buy a house in either of those places? Oh, I mean, yeah. that's the other thing that's really striking. And and I, you know, I've argued elsewhere that part of the reason that living costs have gone up, gone up so much in some of these cities has at least some roots in concentration. Um, oh, you know, yes, the, I think that's undeniable. Uh, you know, on the one hand, that this issue of high housing prices in the uh, supposedly dynamic parts of the economy um, is pointed to as sort of the key barrier that is preventing the right amount of reallocation in the labor market. So, you know, it would be the case that people should just move from all of the uh, rural areas you named to San Francisco, except that um, housing prices are too high. And the reason why housing prices are too high is because uh, zoning regulations are too onerous. Um, and if we all, if we only liberalize the housing market in San Francisco, then um, house prices would go down and everyone could move there and that would be great. So that's our economic policy. Um, and I think that is, again, also overly simplified and uh, misunderstanding, you know, why it is that house prices are high in San Francisco and, and what the effect of a policy that would totally deregulate, say, the, the housing market in San Francisco, I think that would most likely uh, increase the market power of of, uh, incumbent owners of uh, of housing and of land in in San Francisco, and possibly even increase uh, rental costs to the people who there. That's more speculative, but um, it's certainly not some sort of policy panacea that you could um, uh, just cause a sort of bonanza of ha- building uh, and, and construction that would suddenly bring the price of living in San Francisco down to um, you know the level uh, of the rent of you know living in in uh, a much more uh, rural and and less. Uh, densely populated area. So you've mentioned antitrust uh, a few times in this conversation. And, and you know, uh, you talked about, you know, monopoly and monopsony being sort of two kind of different sides of the same sort of problem. You know, antitrust policy you know, mostly has been thought of in terms of consumers for a long time. And, and we've talked about this on this show before, you know, that, that when we think about, you know, concentration, mainly we think about, well, what's, you know, is it causing prices to go up? Um, and that's really the only thing that gets considered. Um, so uh, you've been among, uh, along with others, been sort of advocating that some of these labor market effects ought to be part of how we think about antitrust, how we think about mergers. Tell me a little bit about what that would actually mean. Like, how would you implement that kind of uh, uh, set of, of ideas in the context of antitrust policy? Yeah, that's, I, I think, a highly topical policy question. Um so we define labor markets uh, as occupations by commuting zone by quarter, essentially, and 
that paper, the, the career builder paper, shows that uh, defined that way, labor markets are highly concentrated. Um, the main uh, policy lever that antitrust has been using, especially recently, is merger review. Um, I, there, there are some non-merger cases that uh, the fe- at least the federal uh, antitrust agencies undertake, but I would say that's probably the bulk of their work is reviewing the mergers where two companies say, okay, well, we want to merge, and the agencies either say, we have no problem with that, or they, they bring a case and demand concessions or even go to trial, as is happening now in AT&T, Time Warner. And the key economic analysis that's undertaken as part of merger review is to deduce whether uh, the merger of two competing companies in a given market would cause prices to go up or down. And that requires defining what the relevant market is uh, for the parties to the merger. As you just correctly said, that is in the present time more or less solely done on the basis of uh, monopoly and pricing of out- of output goods, and it is quite likely that the uh, labor markets are defined fundamentally differently from product markets. So if you think of something like um, the Maytag-Whirlpool merger that happened in the mid-2000s, um, you know, that was basically you know two, the two major um, home appliance manufacturers um, merge. They were allowed to merge unchallenged. Um, I think there's good evidence to suggest that that merger was turned out to be anti-competitive after the fact in the market for washing machines, dishwashers, and other appliances that they produce. Um, you know, at the time, I would bet that the authorities defined the market for washing machines, appliance, and other home appliances as being the entire United States, uh, uh, may, or maybe. Maybe something slightly less than that, but the whole the point is everyone gets their washing machine. You know they might shop for it retail, but um, you know there's a distribution network that is essentially geographically unbounded. Whereas for labor, the whole point of what we've been talking about, and certainly of our paper, is that the market for labor is uh, uh, quite a bit uh, geographically. determined. Um, And so if that merger had been evaluated for its labor market impact, you would have seen uh, the the whole uh, economy-wide market for washing machines is not going to become less concentrated as a result of this merger. I mean, again, I I don't think that turned out to be correct, but I think that was probably the, um, the finding that the agencies came up with. But the labor market for workers at the factories where those companies worked is are like very likely to get more concentrated. Um, and I think we know for a fact that um, a couple of factories of one or the other parties was closed directly as a result of that merger. Um, and a lot of people were laid off. And under the present uh, implementation of antitrust policy, that those layoffs and closure of factories would be put forward as an efficiency gain from the merger uh, because the parties would say, well, we're concentrating our production at our most efficient factories and this will uh, actually end up benefiting consumers because we'll be able to lower prices as a result of the fact that our um, production uh, chain is more efficient. But if you, again, analyze the merger from the perspective of the labor market, then that what what looks like an efficiency is actually just a monopsonization of the, la- of the local labor market um, and consequently would be viewed as anti-competitive. So um, that is one, but one of the areas in which uh, antitrust policy could change as a result of taking labor markets seriously. Uh, there's been policy interest in um, 
curtailing and uh, the use of restrictive labor market agreements. So this would be in the realm of of antitrust conduct, not of market structure. Um, things like no poaching agreements and uh, non compete clauses. So no poaching agreements are the parties are employers, um, and they would be agreeing with one or to, to hi, not hire one another's workers. Um, that is you know pretty well clearly already against the law um, because it's a horizontal um, uh, cartel basically in the labor market. And uh, what movement there is to change the law with respect to no poaching agreements pertains to um, the use of them in franchising contracts. So like, say, two McDonald's franchisees or any McDonald's franchisee in the contract it signs with the McDonald's headquarters will say, well, we were not going to hire the employees of another McDonald's franchisee. Um, it's sort of unclear whether that's a horizontal or a vertical agreement. Um, but in any case, there's a policy proposal from uh, Senator Cory Booker to make that uh, also illegal, which is good. Um, on non-compete clauses, that is an agreement between an employer and an employee for the employee not to uh, work for a different company uh uh, if they leave their current one. Um, and that is more uh, controversial as a matter of antitrust law because it, uh, since the uh, takeover of antitrust law by the Chicago School, vertical agreements, vertical non-price agreements, that is um, imposing terms of uh, any contract on the counterparty, is uh, viewed as pro-competitive. So if uh, antitrust law were to move to treating um, non-compete clauses in the labor market as illegal, then that would just be uh, a pretty major uh, departure from existing policy, at least vis-a-vis -vis labor. Uh, I'm sorry, vis-a-vis -vis antitrust. Vis-a-vis -vis labor, it may be a more more within the spirit of existing labor market policies. Um, the final point I want to make is sort of a big economic theoretical point, which is that our findings, both in the Career Builder paper and especially in our more recent paper that uses a, a larger data set of uh, essentially all online vacancy postings, in, in that paper, we do a, a more of an analysis of what is the right uh, market definition for labor markets, and we come to the conclusion, as I was discussing previously, that um, this occupation by uh, commuting zone by quarter is actually fairly conservative because uh, that overestimates the degree the, the number of alternatives that are really functionally available to most workers if they're looking for a job. Um, based on our analysis in this paper and from some other work in the literature, it looks like the right labor market definition is more along the lines of individual firms. That means that for every every single firm in the economy, or you know, in, under this theory, most firms in the economy have a sufficient amount of wage setting discretion that is monopsony power such that they are monopsonous in the market for their own workers labor um, and if every firm is a monopsony then what you're looking at in a kind of an extreme antitrust policy world is um, that every firm should be broken up uh, and that is not really a feasible antitrust policy what that suggests is rather that um Antitrust can do a lot in the labor market to make it more competitive, and uh, it's absolutely appropriate to talk about things like merger review on the basis of labor market definition, and that takes wage reduction seriously as a potential threat of anti-competitive uh, conduct. But antitrust alone cannot solve the uh, labor market's problems, and specifically the wage-setting power of employers and just employer power more generally. Um, this is why, historically, we have had labor market regulations, why we have protections for collective bargaining, because we recognize that the employer-employee employee relationship is inherently one of unequal power, whereas the premise in antitrust is more or less that you have are parties with equal power, and then you try to you, you try to correct market um, 
uh, imperfections such that where where one party becomes overwhelmingly powerful, you pair back their power and limit it in such a way as they can't um, exert it to distort markets completely and remove competition. In labor markets, we already know that one party is going to be more powerful. That is employers. And so we have a whole realm of policy uh, that is labor and uh employment policy and collective bargaining and unionization rights, um, all of those are are necessary to restore a proper degree of balance to the economy. Um, antitrust alone is not going to be able to do it. That's really interesting. You just gave us sort of three different ways to, to think about ways to approach this from a policy standpoint. And just to go back through those, I have a question about one, but I'll, I'll, I'll go through them backwards. Um, so the, the third notion that you, you mentioned is this idea that you know, we can't, antitrust can't carry the weight of everything. And I think that we've seen this in other sectors as well. But then in the context of of workers, we also need to think about policies around how easy is it to form a union, for example? Do we let employers misclassify workers as being, you know, subcontractors when they're really, you know, actually employees? Uh, Amazon and others do that a lot. Um, There are all kinds of ways in which policy needs to help ensure that people have uh, a fair playing field when they're when they're bargaining as as workers, and we see this in other sectors too. We've done a lot of work on dairy farms, for example. You know, if you have a very perishable product, which is fresh milk, and it's very bulky, and you can't ship it very far away before it goes bad, um, you're really hamstrung. It's hard to bargain with a milk processor, and so we've always supported kind of this history of federal and regional pricing supports in the milk industry because it just really is inherently not the kind of competition, you know, doesn't produce enough competition for milk. The second thing you mentioned was around these non-compete clauses and these poaching agreements, which are just, you know, we should have you or or someone else on the show at some point to talk more in depth about this, because it's just so scandalous to me that, like, you're a fast food worker and you can't go take a job at a different McDonald's or, you know, at another fast food outlet because you've signed this, like, agreement or there's a no poaching deal. Um, So we could take some direct action, you know, using competition policy against those kinds of things. And then the first one you mentioned was around mergers. This idea of having um, these these labor effects and these labor markets being considered in the context of mergers, and I have a question that I want to ask you about that to to wrap things up here. And you know, historically, antitrust was uh, you know as much about people as producers of value as workers as it was as it is you know was about us as consumers um, John Sherman who you know who lent his name to the very first uh, or one of the first antitrust laws back in 1890 said you know monopoly is a problem because quote it commands the price of labor without fear of strikes for it for in its field, it allows no competitors. So clearly this issue that you're talking about has always been there from the beginning. And the question I have for you is, is how we should think about this. And it's it relates to a really interesting blog post that I read um, uh, that Lena Khan wrote recently for a European um, outlet about uh, Lena is the uh, legal policy director at the Open Markets Institute, and she was writing about this sort of new movement for a better antitrust and what should be the principles of it. And we'll post a link to this on the show page. But one of the things she talks about is this idea that antitrust went wrong because we really collapsed everything to this single outcome, which is lower consumer prices. And we should be careful, she says, not to collapse everything to other sets of outcomes like for example, labor effects, um, that really we need to think about antitrust in, in terms of, of using it 
to structure markets. So that what we should be doing is asking, does a merger create a market where there's a lot of competition? Or, you know, does it reduce competition too much? You know, how many people, how many competitors are there in this market? Are we allowing, is it a, a kind of market where it's easy for a new entrant to come in, a new business to come in? We really should be looking more at structure and not at outcomes. And even if we switch from a consumer outcome to a different outcome, we may be not in, in really a better place in the long run. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you think about that, particularly in context of, of these labor issues. Yeah, I think that uh, Lena's definitely onto something there. I would say that economics as a field, and in particular, it's quote-unquote policy-relevant economics, I used to have just a totally different conception of what the role of economists and of economics was in setting policy. Um, we, I would say, for ideological reasons, developed the view that the economy structures itself and hence the sphere in which policy, that policy can affect um, is relatively narrow and is about correcting minor deviations from the optimal structure of the economy and where the just field of operations and the field which policy can affect is constrained from the outset. Um, whereas when antitrust was invented uh, and, and, and kind of brought certainly to the federal level, um, and in which there absolutely were um, economists kind of there at the at the birth part of the debate of, about what what was the role of this policy uh, alongside other policies like uh, regulation, natural monopolies, utilities, and la- labor policies. I mean, you know, taxation uh, more broadly. Um, it was that that the role of economic policy was to structure the economy. It was up to us to decide what economy we wanted to live in and how it was going to work. Um, or we could just let the big businesses decide, let the powerful decide it. And I think there's a great quote in um, the book, uh, uh, Social Control of Business by uh, the economist John Morris Clark, um, that says, you know, the key question is, uh, are we going to let big business control us or are we going to control them? 10 words that are uh, an extremely pithy and absolutely on point uh, summary of the issue that faces us with respect to antitrust and all these other policy areas, um, and that also point to where economics as a field and uh, went wrong and where just overall uh, policymaking um, has kind of shrunk to a shriveled, bare imitation of, of its former self in terms of what its ambitions were um, and uh, what was on the table. And I think given that it's now, uh, I would say, a matter of consensus or nearing consensus that the economy that we live in is not functioning well to the benefit of all. And that really, you know, we went wrong somewhere. Uh, Even if you don't agree with me that antitrust is a big component of where we went wrong, I think it's a little hard to deny that um, economic outcomes are not what they should be. This whole idea that, you know, we really lost something profound and need to somehow win it back, I think is going to become uh, a lot more attractive beyond the set of, you know, relatively small set of people like me and Lena who are uh, really focused on this issue of uh, antitrust policy and what the point of that is. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to um, just close by asking if you have a reading recommendation for our audience. That would be exactly what I just said, uh, The Social Control of Business by John Morris Clark. Um, he was an economist and a quote-unquote institutionalist economist. Um, he wrote that book, or he published that book first in 1926, um, and uh, I should say I have not read just the 1926 edition. He republished it in 1939 when he uh, when there was the whole experience of the Great Depression. Where did that come from? As well as both the experience of uh, concentrating markets between 1926 and at least the mid 1930s. Um, and then uh, he spends a lot of time sort of 
recounting why uh, antitrust policy became a lot more active in the uh, mid to late 1930s. So he had seen enough of um, the move to an active antitrust policy in the second half of the New Deal to have something to say about that by the 1939 republication. He also has a lot of very interesting comments about the relationship between um, what we now call macroeconomic policy or macroeconomics in general and antitrust and market structure. This is a confluence that has not uh, had a lot of interest from um economists in the intervening period up until right now, I would say now there are papers being published that have that flavor to them. But I think that Clark uh, was absolutely on point in terms of uh, trying to locate the uh, ultimate causes for uh, both macroeconomic failure has happened in the in the Great Depression, and also uh, why um, what we might think of as a Keynesian macroeconomic policy uh, is a good idea, uh, given how much market power is is just a pervasive fact about the economy, and how uh, big business and, and its structure and uh, market concentration uh, kind of give rise to the macro phenomena that uh, Keynes and his contemporaries were. Uh, uh, concerned about so that is just it's a it's a fantastic book he covers a ton of ground and it is I mean maybe it's especially meaningful to me because I know how thin and pale and pathetic most economics publications are in the intervening 70 years um, since uh, since Clark was writing but uh, it certainly makes me think that um, we went seriously awry uh, somewhere along the way and we need to rediscover the spirit of, of John Morris Clark. Excellent. So we'll post a link on the show page to today's episode to the 1939 edition of that book so people can uh, go find it and, and give it a read. Thanks again, Marshall. It's been great to have you on. Yes, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Very interesting conversation. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumo-Langer. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.